Amen. Well, hey, thank you guys for being here today. Praise the Lord. Um, thank you for being here as visitors, returning visitors, members. Um, I do want to uh, address something with you guys real quick. Um, as, as, as a preacher, I don't know if you guys have ever spoken in public or ever, ever done that before. Last week, man, I tell you, I thought the message, God just really gave us something awesome. And I felt like it was 100% me, and you guys were just like, ugh. You ever talk to somebody who doesn't seem like they're listening? Doesn't it feel hard to talk sometimes? Understand, preaching is a two-way street. This is a team effort, right? So what happens is, I've, is I'm going to give my very, very best to you, and I'm going to ask you to be engaged. Because understand, if you're disconnected, and I know we all have cares and concerns outside of this place, but right now, this time, this is his time. It's not about us. It's about us having receptive hearts that God would speak to us and it would make a difference. And I can tell you, of, of all the messages that I've written over the last three and a half years, yesterday, man, I'm telling you, God met with me over, I just, I'm excited for this message. So if I don't blow it, we're going to have a great day. I'm going to do my best not to mess it up. So y'all work with me, help me as best you can, and I will do my best to get through it. So let's pray real quick for the offering. You can give your offering in the back. You can mail it in. You can do however you choose to. Thank you for all of you that are faithful in paying your tithes to church and we're allow, what we're allowing us to do in the community. So let's pray for the blessing for the offering, and then we'll move forward. God, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity as a church, God, just to come together as a body. Lord, that we might honor you, that we might lift you up, God. Uh, today is a day of honoring Christ, Lord. This is a day not about us. We're not the audience of the service, Lord. We are participants in the service. God, you are the audience. So Lord, help our hearts and our minds be focused upon what it is you have for us. Help us to be engaged mentally, physically, and emotionally, Lord, that, Lord, that uh, you might speak to our hearts and, Lord, that we might truly worship you today. Thank you for the opportunity you give us to give. I pray that you'll bless the gift, bless the giver. And, Lord, I pray that you'll multiply the offering that we might do great things, not only here locally, but around the world. Thank you for your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, now let's jump into this thing. So, we have been walking through the book of Exodus. Uh, I've got a stack of paper in my office. I was looking at it, 96 messages we've preached in the book of Exodus. Praise God for that. Well, I tell you what, it's been amazing. And what last week we looked at was the fact that God was really showing us last week in our message, which was called Setting Our House in Order. What the Lord was doing was he was showing us kind of how things should be laid out as the dwelling place. God's tabernacle has been built. All the parts and pieces are laid out. And what he was doing last week was going, here's your instructions on how it's to be set out. So he went through that aspect. And what's interesting about the tabernacle is the fact that normally we just reference it as the tabernacle. But what's interesting in scripture is God actually gives it two names. He calls it the tabernacle. We see that all the way up until you see it's, I think it's in Exodus 2719, Exodus 2719, right after that. So up to that point, 20 times God will use the term tabernacle. After 2719, he will give it another name. He starts calling it the tabernacle of the congregation, okay? And we see that, and what it seems to be saying is this. God's not saying, look, this is just my house. This is for me and for my people. And what we find is God uses those names interchangeably. But what it's about, what this is saying is really God saying, hey, you know what? Part of this is is about, you know, hey, like when you see the tabernacle, when he just lists tabernacle, there's a pattern that kind of shows up. It's not always consistent, but traditionally when he uses the word tabernacle, he's talking about the tent itself, just the main tent where the Holy of Holies is and where God's holy place is. Then when he talks more about the outer court and about sort of the thing as a whole, then he'll reference it as the, the, uh, the, the, the tabernacle of the congregation. So we see here God's desire for this whole thing is that God wants to spend time with humanity. He wants to restore humanity. Many times we look at the tabernacle, it's God's dwelling place. Look, God wasn't looking for a vacation home, okay? He wasn't looking for a place where he could just come hang out and put his feet up and relax because all the pressures of heaven. That's not what this was about. 
Okay? This is about us finding a place where we could meet with him. So God's desire was restoration. That is the driving force of what we see here. So what happens is Exodus 29, 45, God says this, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. So God's saying, look, I want to be their God. I want to have a relationship with them. Now, you and I, here we are. We're thinking about, man, you know what? Restoration. If your fellowship with God is broken right now, for whatever reason, maybe you've never known him. Maybe you've known him, but you've gotten away from him, right? What happens in our lives is we vacillate many times between walking with God and walking away from God. And what I want you to understand is that if you see on our sign, it says a place of restoration. And it's not by accident, right? This is a place where people are restored, not because of us, but because what this place does through the spirit of God and the word of God. So restoration is a beautiful thing. It's God's desire. It's God's heart. And if that's what you're here for, man, you're in the right place. Praise God for that. So what happens is God has a vested interest in this dwelling place, man. He wants this thing to be all about that restoration. He wants to be all about holiness. He wants it to be about understanding him and bringing worship to God. So God created humanity for the fact that he wanted to fellowship with us. He wanted, to conf he wanted us to confide in him. He wanted us to depend upon him. He wanted us to talk to him, to love him, and ultimately to worship him. Okay, that's why we're here. Our life is supposed to bring glory to God. Exodus 7, verse 16, way back there in Exodus 7, listen to what God says. Now, what happens prefacely to preface this, this is what God's telling Moses. He says, when you go talk to Pharaoh, for those of you that just came in, we're in Exodus uh, chapter, <laughs> we're in chapter number 7, right? 7, 16, and we're going to be in Exodus 40. Um, but Exodus 7, 7, 16, what's happening here is God's telling Moses, hey, when you talk to Pharaoh, make sure you tell him this, okay? These are the instructions. He says here, and thou shalt say unto him, the Lord God of the Hebrews hath sent me unto thee, saying, listen to this. This is what he's supposed to say. Let my people go. Boy, we hear that and we're like, yes! Oh, yeah, let them go. But he doesn't stop there. That they may serve me in the wilderness. And we're all about salvation, man. We're all about, man, God, get me out of Egypt. Woohoo! But we forget the part about God saying, now, okay, I didn't get you out for you. I got you out for me, right? We're so selfish, we don't see that. So God said, look, that they may serve me. And four different times, God will have him say that same phrase. You were freed so that you could serve me. And why do you think God freed us from our sin? <laughs> Was it just so that we could hang out? No. We were freed to serve, right? And then what we have to ask ourselves every day, am I serving him or am I serving me? We live in a culture that says serve me. It says God's not important. He shouldn't even be on the list of important things. You're number one. Whatever you want, do it. Fulfill yourself. You get what you want. This life is all about you, which is absolutely contrary to God and what it does is it draws our hearts away from him and I think a lot of us if we've looked at that question every morning God do I serve myself or do I serve God I think a lot of us would like to change our answer it's unfortunate that many times we do serve ourselves but just like as we look at these Israelites right they get a chance to choose God gives them free will for the purpose of the fact that guess what they get to make choices their free will is an important part because choices is it's all up this life's all about right you can choose to serve God. You can choose to serve self. We can choose to grow in the Lord or we can choose to grow in our flesh. Our freedom and our choices have monumental consequences, not only in our life, but in the lives of people around us. Remember, we're an influence on those that we're around. Remember, God showed us last week the, that the importance of obedience, right? We couldn't get to step two until we were obedient in step one. 
right? We need to finish one and get that completed, and then what will happen is we'll have other opportunities. So we saw faithfulness and obedience in the Israelites, right? We saw that last week, and because of that, guess what the instructions continue? Praise the Lord. God didn't say, hey, you didn't do the first one. They're staying, sticking with it. God continues with his instructions. So as we approach this next part, as we look at this assembly of the dwelling place, okay? This is an important thing. We need to have ears to hear today. Jesus says that time and time again, because guess what? He struggled with the same thing I'm struggling with last week. Man, yeah, hey, have ears to hear. Listen, get this, because this is important. I need you to respond. Get this message, right? God's instructing them on how this, last week he instructed them on how that, that tabernacle was to be laid out. We talked about setting our house in order. It was about the physical layout of the tabernacle. So we looked at the physical aspect. What we're going to see here now is we're going to shift to the spiritual. We're going to shift to the spiritual. So we have a physical and a spiritual, just like in your life. You have a physical aspect of you and you have a spiritual aspect of you. And we'll see that same thing mirrored here in our message this morning called Anointed Unto God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. God, for giving us opportunity, Father, first just to be in your house. Uh, Lord, the fact that this little church exists, that you took an old bank that was abandoned, God, and you turned it into this beautiful place of God. Whew. Thank you, Lord. I'm overwhelmed by that on a regular basis. And uh, Lord, I don't take lightly what you've entrusted me to do today. And uh, Lord, I do not want to, for them to hear me. I don't want us to hear from David. I want us to hear from God. So, Lord, I pray that you use your scripture. I pray that you use your spirit, Lord, to permeate our hearts and minds. And God, draw us to truth. Help us to see what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to read all the way through our, our passage, what we're going to study. And then we're going to go back and we're going to take it apart. The Bible, we call it in, in biblical, we call it exegete. We're going to take this thing apart piece by piece. So Exodus 40, verses 9 through 16. It says, And thou shalt take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is therein and shalt hallow it and all the vessels thereof, and it shall be holy. And thou shalt anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all his vessels and sanctify the altar and it shall be an altar most holy. And thou shalt anoint the labor and his foot and sanctify it. And thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and wash them with water. And thou shalt put upon Aaron and his, the holy garments and anoint him and sanctify him that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt bring his sons and clothe them with coats and thou shalt anoint them as thou didst anoint their father that they may minister unto me in the priest's office for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their, throughout their generations. Verse 16, thus did Moses according to all that the Lord commanded him, so did he. So as we look at this, we see there's a spiritual uh, preparation here for the tabernacle. And the first thing we see is that God mentioned something called the anointing oil, okay? We look at the anointing oil, we go, well, what exactly is the anointing oil, okay? Exodus chapter number 30 is where these instructions are given. God tells us what, they're, what they are. I'm going to read them quickly, and then we're going to kind of talk about them a little bit. So Exodus 30, verses 23 through 25. Exodus 30, 23 through 25, this is instructions on the anointing oil. Take thou also unto thee three principal spices, okay? These three big ones. Pure myrrh, 500 shekels, and of, a, and of cinnamon, half so much, even 250 shekels, and of sweet calamus, 250 shekels, and of cassia, 500 shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary and of oil, olive, and hen. And we hear that and we go, what does that mean? What is he talking about? Okay, these are not coins. When you see the term shekel, it's talking about weights. It's talking about volumes, okay? So let's get to get a handle on this. I'm gonna give you an idea what this means in today's terms, okay? So if we think about this, we have myrrh, right? This is about a one and a half gallons of myrrh. Myrrh is a liquid uh, substance, kind of a pasty substance. And what's interesting is myrrh is directly linked to death. 
We find it again and again and again in Scripture. You'll see it in Jesus' life, right? Whenever they come to him, and the, when the wise men come to baby Jesus, when the, not baby Jesus, but as a young man, Jesus, when they bring to him as a child, what do they do? They bring myrrh, frankincense, and gold. That myrrh is referencing the fact that he one day is going to die for the sins of the world. Then we find myrrh when he's on the cross. What? They bring him wine mingled with myrrh. Then when his body is taken to the tomb, what is it they anoint him with? One of the main things, myrrh, again and again and again. It's pointing to Christ. Then they have, they have six and a quarter pounds of powdered cinnamon. They have six and a quarter pounds of calamus. Calamus turns out something like nutmeg. I didn't know what calamus was, and I don't know what cassia is either, but it turns out cassia is similar to cinnamon. But there's 12 and a half pounds of cassia, and then there's a gallon of olive oil, okay? So they're going to take all of this stuff, and then it tells us what they did with them right here. Verse 25, and thou shalt make it an, an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary. It shall be an holy anointing oil. So they're going to take all these ingredients, they're going to put them in, they're going to grind them and mix them and stuff like that. They're going to make this this stuff. And what's interesting about this is the fact that we see that this incense has a specific, specific ingredient list. It has a specific recipe. Just like we see with the anointing oil, we see just like with the incense that we saw at the golden altar. That gold, that altar had to be specific. It was very unique, the incense was. So the first thing we notice about this oil is the fact that it is, it is unique. It is one of a kind. It is to be holy. So at this point, Moses, remember they've delivered all the parts and pieces. Moses is sitting there and they keep bringing stuff and bringing stuff and bringing stuff. So when they bring the ointment, they're like, they put down these five, about five gallons of this sticky, gooey, oily ointment. That's what Moses is looking at, okay? And God's giving him instructions of what he's supposed to do. So we see here, first of all, that that, what's interesting about the oil in the Bible is the oil always represents, represents the spirit, okay? We saw this with the golden candlestick. Remember what fueled the golden candlestick was oil olive oil right and it was told that they said that that oil was to be beaten not pressed traditionally would press oil this oil is to be beaten referencing the fact that light is the light of the world the light of god um, but so that oil was unique that's in the lamp but what's interesting about this oil is it's even more unique it's got all these specific ingredients but what not only is the, it's not just the ingredients but it's the fact that god calls it holy right so if we look at oil and that represents the spirit and we look at what god calls this oil he calls it holy. That's a pretty good indication that God's giving us a picture of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Okay. So we see the Holy Spirit here. So last week we talked about where does the Holy Spirit dwell in the church age. Now here, what happens, God's going to bring the Spirit upon earth. But now the, earth, the Spirit lives on earth inside of individual believers. So during the church age, this is the dwelling place of the Spirit. And we'll get into what that means for us in a minute. But first, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22. Not coincidentally, listen to what this says. It says, now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us, listen to this, is God, okay? So God anointed us. What did God anoint us with? Go to verse 22. Who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the spirit in our hearts. So at the moment of salvation, we received the Holy Spirit of God. We call it the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's how we reference it. Romans 8 verses 9 through 11 says this, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. So as born-again believers, the Spirit of God is within us. We were anointed with that Spirit we just saw in 1 Corinthians 1.21. So first we saw the uniqueness of this oil, but then what we also see in this verse is the purpose of this oil. What's the purpose of this oil? 
Check this out. Exodus 40, verse 9. What did it say? It says, And thou shalt take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is therein, that, 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 uh, and shalt hallow it and all the vessels thereof. It shall be holy. So it is for the purpose of anointing. Understand, anointing has two components. There is a spirit, there is a physical component, and there is a spiritual component of this. This, now, first of all, looking at the physical, right? Practically, what this means is they would take an oil or an ointment and they would pour it or rub it upon something. And what it would do is it would set that thing aside for God's use. Either a person or a thing would be consecrated or set aside for God's purposes. In the first century, understand, during the Jewish culture, this was something that was common, okay? This was something that would happen. You'd go visit someone in their home, and guess what they would do? They would anoint your forehead, or they'd put something in your hair, or they would anoint your feet, right? That was just something that they did. It was a way of honoring someone, refreshing someone as they came into your home because they come off these dusty, dirty roads, right? But what's interesting is we have an instance here in Luke 7 where Jesus is invited into a man's house who's a Pharisee. He's this religious leader. His name is Simon. He's like, man, Jesus, you just got to come to my house, man. He's like, okay, I'll come. And boy, they walk in, and let's see what happens. Luke 7, verse 44 through 46. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon. So he says, so seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house and thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet, my head with oil. Thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. You gotta realize who this woman is. This is Mary Magdalene, God. She has been saved out of a life of horrific sin. And what we see is her response. And the reason why she does what she does is out of thanksgiving to God. It's out of, it's out of forgiveness that she's received from God. So we see her service. She's giving herself to the Lord. She's sanctifying herself unto God's service. We see this aspect. And what God's teaching us here is the fact that, hey, you know what? The reason why she's so excited, the reason why she's so like this. You know, Simon, you're a religious leader. You don't get this. You think you're all set. And you know what? Too much is given, man, much is required, man. He says, look, because she's been given, he gives them an analogy and he gives a story. And he says, there's a man that owns 500, there's a man that owns 50. And he said, when the, the two debts are forgiven, which one has more, has, has a greater, greater uh, uh, appreciation? And he says, well, the one that says 500, and he said, you said that right, buddy. Your problem is you think you're the 50. And he said, you think your sin's uh, below hers and she think you think she's so bad because one of the things that, that happens is Simon thinks in his heart and he goes if he knew what who what kind of woman this was this was he wouldn't let her touch his feet and Jesus is like you idiot he didn't say that that's my ad <laughs> but that's what he's thinking you idiot what are you thinking man no sin is above any other sin we all need God we all need his grace and we should all be thankful Whew. that wasn't my message but we'll just add it so we see here that this aspect, uh, there's a spiritual, that's the physical act. And then there's a spiritual part of it. There's a spiritual component. And we see here that this anointing was supposed to make them hallowed. It was supposed to make them holy, okay? Now, there's, this is an important part. The process, of, uh, the process of this anointing on the spiritual level, it's about spiritual sanctification. Sanctification is to be set apart. But see, this is an important part. We're to be set apart from the world, but dedicated unto God which takes us back to that Exodus 7 that we saw. He says, you, he says, I'm going to free, you know, let my people go that they may serve me, okay? So the aspect of being removed from the world, remember we saw the picture, the world is sin. That's, the, that's where we come out of. The Israelites picture us. We come out of that because of the deliverer, Jesus Christ, who was pictured in Moses. And they come out of the Egypt, not so that they can live in the world, so that they can come unto God. 
When you get married, it's not just about leaving your father and mother. The Bible says you're supposed to leave your father and mother and then cleave unto your wife. It's not about the leaving. It's about the cleaving. If it was about the leaving, you'd be telling your wife, honey, I'm so glad I got out of that house. Whew. It's great. Thanks for getting me out of there. I appreciate it. Well, I mean, I love you. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, 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 great. But man, getting out of there was awesome. That's many people who talk about their salvation. Man, I'm saved. Praise the Lord. How about the service part of cleaving unto your father? How about cleaving unto your husband, right? And you and I are supposed to make a step. God's saying, hey, look, the sanctification is not just you separating yourself from the world, but it's your separation unto me, unto my service. Where's your heart? If you think it's about you, you're confused. You're like this Pharisee, like Simon. You're consumed with yourself. You think you're something special. And God says, look, you know what? We're all in the same situation. We need God. And if we think about this aspect of anointing from a spiritual level, the very first time it shows up in Scripture, Genesis, Genesis 31. Way back there in Genesis, what find is Jacob, who will become Israel. Jacob has lived a life where he's messed things up, man. He's made a lot of bad choices. He's lived rebelliously. He's lived in opposition to God. He's lived in disobedience to God. And he makes a turn in his life. And he makes a vow to God. And listen to what happens here in Exodus 31, 13. I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointest the pillar, and where thou vowedest a vow unto me. Now arise, get thee out from this land, and return unto the land of thy kindred. Guess where his land is? Canaan, which is where we're trying to get to in this book of Exodus. It is anointing. He said, he said, look, you know what? I am setting myself apart. I'm giving myself unto God's service. So we consider the spiritual component of the anointing. And we might think, you know, and this is matter, uh, the best way to describe it for us, it's like surrendering something, okay? Surrendering something. I'm surrendering myself. I'm surrendering something or someone unto God's use. That's the purpose of what we're trying to accomplish here. Now, there'll be some of us in this room, right? And you may go, you know, Surrendering is an issue I'm struggling with. You know, I'm having a hard time with that aspect of being surrendered. You know, I'm just, I'm really just trying to get separated from the world at this point. But, but the surrendering part, I, I, I'm struggling, right? Maybe there's some of you who go, you know what, hey, you know, I've been living just like Jacob was in disobedience. I've been living in rebellion. I may call myself a Christian, but my walk is not what it should be. I'm standing in rebellion to God as we speak. Even today, my heart's not fully sold out to God. I want to be, but I'm not. And if that's where we are, man, praise God that God is simply, he's waiting on us. He's working in us. He uses services like this and messages like this to draw us, to grip us. He grips me while I'm writing and I'm praying and crying over this message as I'm writing it for God to use it. But we've seen already in this message that the fact that this is a physical and a spiritual thing. Okay? There's physical surrender and there's spiritual surrender. There's two aspects of this. Listen to this in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourselves. Come before God, realizing who you are and who he is. And verse 7, casting all your care upon him. And here's the beautiful part. For he careth for you. Man, God has, it's all about restoring the broken we're all here living this life, dealing with adversities of life, dealing with being broken, dealing with being hurt, dealing with being disappointed or betrayed or lied to or all the things that life brings and throws our way. We can deal with it on our own and struggle or we can say, Lord, you know what? I'm going to cast my care upon you for you careth for me. God, you carry me through this. I need not be strong. I can be weak because you're strong. 
Man, if we try to do it on our own, it is an arduous, tough struggle day by day. But if you'll surrender it to God, praise the Lord, you can walk in victory. But think about this. If we consider this truth, it's one thing to say, you know what, hey, Lord, I'm going to make a commitment. I'm making a change. Lord, I'm going to submit to you right now. And it's another thing altogether to do it, right? Because we're really good at making commitments. Anybody else really good at making commitments? Man, I can kill commitments all day long. Awesome at making commitments. Follow through. There's my issue. That's why I got the struggle there, right? And so how many of us have said, look, you know what, Lord, I'm never going to do this again. This is it. Only to fall right into the same thing again, okay? So God understands this, right? God understands this about us. And this is not a matter of behavior modification. This is not a matter of self-control. This is a matter of surrender to the power that can work in your life through the Spirit of God to bring change that you cannot bring. God can do a miracle. God can do the impossible in our hearts, allowing the Holy Spirit of God to anoint our lives and sanctify us unto his service. Because when we do that, when we do that, we will start to live for God's glory and no longer for our own gratification. Because if we live for our own gratification, we'll find that we're never gratified. There's always something more. Man, I need a 50-inch TV. That 50-inch TV is awesome for about six months. And all of a sudden, that 70-inch TV is on sale. Dang. That's awesome. Okay. Well, we can put that one in the closet. Yeah, yeah we need a 70 because, I mean, honey, I mean, I mean really, it, it's just for us. I think it's the best thing. That's what we need. Yeah, that's what we need. And that 70, I mean, you know what, honey, that wall's got a lot more space on it. I mean, we could go, I don't know how big they make them, but I mean, we could fit a, a big TV on that wall. We struggle, man. We're all about gratification. And God says, look, if you do that, you're never going to be satisfied. When you learn how to surrender to me, guess what you'll see? I can do great things in your life. This is a hallowing process, right? We see the hallowing and the holy, and the, and the holy aspect of this. And what we find here is that's what Moses is called to do. Moses is called to go to the tabernacle. He's supposed to make it exclusive. He's to have it set apart for God's use, right? So we think about that. And if you studied back in Exodus 30, we saw how the anointing was supposed to take place. We studied through all that. We're not going to go through any of that again. But it sort of sums it up here in Exodus 30, verse 29. It says this, And thou shalt sanctify them, and they may be, that they may be most holy. Whatsoever touches them shall be holy. So we clearly see that what God's saying is, Hey, you know what? I want to make sure that everything... Every part of this tabernacle, every part of it, and anybody that touches anything of it is going to be set, set aside and dedicated to me, dedicated unto my service. And that brings us to what that, that hallowing process is, right? And we look at this. As we just said, you know, hallowing is not a matter of, of simply separating. This is that for the purpose of serving God. Jesus spoke on this subject in, in, when he was in the synagogue. Now, he was back in his hometown and he goes back into the synagogue and listen, as he's talking about this, he's addressing this issue of God's anointing and the purpose of it. And he came, Luke 4, verses 16 through 19. Luke 4, verses 16 through 19. Jesus is back in his hometown. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered under him the book of the prophet Isaiah. That's Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now he starts to read the, the, the scripture. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel 
to the poor. He has sent me to heal the, heart, the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Boom. Done. He's like, wow, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. Anointed unto God for that purpose. But there's something interesting that's happening here. A little subtlety that God's teaching us if we pay attention. I want you to pay attention. Notice how he ends here. He says, to preach the, uh, to, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, period. Okay? Now, if you go and read that verse, you go, to Psalm, you go to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, which is what he just read. I want you to notice here. I'll read it to you. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, what Jesus just read. And remember, he said it ends here, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, period. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to let them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma. Uh-oh. So Jesus stopped short. He said, look, I'm here right now to do this first part, but there's another part that's going to come. There's another part that's coming. And it says here, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Even in the way Jesus reads the scripture, he's pointing to his second coming. The theme of the Bible is again and again and again and again revisited in scripture. He cannot miss it. It's the theme of the Bible. So as we move back to the anointing of the tabernacle, it's important to remember, right, that this tabernacle sitting out in the wilderness is just a picture of the real tabernacle, okay? The real tabernacle is here. Hebrews 8, 5 tells us about this. This thing's like a model, like an architectural model. Who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle for, and this is God saying, for see, saith he, that thou makest all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mountain. He says, look, I gave you an example. I showed you what it's like in heaven and the one you're going to build on earth, it is to be as it is in heaven. I want it to be as it is in heaven. Matthew 9, or Matthew 6, 9 through 13, listen to the model prayer of Christ. After this manner, therefore pray ye our Father, which art in heaven, talking about that heavenly abode, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come, talking of the second coming, by the way, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this daily, our daily, our day, our daily bread, and forgive us not, our, give us our, our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God wants his earthly tabernacle to be just like his heavenly one. It is to be holy and consecrated unto God. And then we keep this in mind. This, uh, you know, and understand this can only happen by way of the spirit of God. Okay. This anointing is a picture of the spirit. And so what we do is we look at this and we go, understand this is an earthly tabernacle back then. But what happens is we entered in a different age, right? We leave the Old Testament behind. We enter into the New Testament, into the church age. When God established the church through Jesus Christ, after the death of Christ, what happens is the tabernacle changes form. It's no longer a structure. It's no longer a building. The Bible tells us that we actually are the tabernacle. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 through 17 says this. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, that the, the, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. He says, now, now, instead of having a tabernacle like we had before, now you're that tabernacle. So we think about this aspect of anointing this tabernacle, preparing this tabernacle, doing all that we're doing, right? So we understand, if we think about this tabernacle, this 
tent sitting in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness. And we consider the fact that it is a picture of us. It makes this thing become personal, okay? Now, when we think about that tabernacle, I want you to think about your life. Remember last week we talked about the crucial, how crucial it was for us to be obedient to God in our service. Listen to this in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Okay, we didn't know better. When you're lost, you don't know better. You know, what does a lost person do? They act like a lost person. They don't know any different. But once we're saved, he's saying, hey, look, don't go back to your ignorance, your former lusts. Verse 15, but as he which hath called you is holy, be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. So he's saying, look, your tabernacle needs to be holy. God's telling us that our tabernacle, us, needs to be like the one in heaven, hallowed, holy, and sanctified. And this can only happen, understand, through the power of the Spirit of God. It will not be through our will. It will not be through our strength or our, our commitment. It's not about that. This anointing process is physical. But what happens is they're going around and they're anointing these things physically. They are picturing spiritually what's to be happening in us. Okay? So that's what we see. This is picturing inside of us. God created the, 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 uh, the tabernacle for a place to meet with his people in the Old Testament. But man, tell you what, not only was it for that purpose, but it was a teaching tool in the lives of the believer today that we can look back on that and see what God is doing and what he has for us. So as we listen to these instructions about the tabernacle and how this is all supposed to be used, I want us to apply it to ourselves, okay? So instead of applying it just to the tabernacle, I want you to apply it to your own walk, your own life. It's not just about being righteous and holy, but surrendered to God's use. So let's plug ourselves into these instructions. So first we saw that the tabernacle proper, that tent, was to be uh, in its process of anointing. And we know in that, in that tent that there is the Holy of Holies, which is the place where you have intimacy with God. And then there's the holy place. That's where we worship God, right? So we see those two aspects of our lives. So we see our, our, our intimacy with God and our holiness or our worship with God. And both of those have got to be anointed by the Spirit of God. Both of those have got to be holy because if they're not, they're false. They're false. There are people that worship God falsely. There are people that worship God falsely. There are people in this room right now that you were singing earlier and your heart is far from God. Right? That's probably just the reality of the way it is, and it's true all across the country. Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9 says this. Jesus says this, Is this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me. He says their, their worship has no value in my eyes. Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So if they're not sanctified, if those aspects, if our intimacy with God and our worship to God are not sanctified, they're not holy, guess what? They don't have any value. They don't mean anything. Then we move on to Exodus 40, verse 10. It says this, And thou shalt anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all his vessels and sanctify the altar, and it shall be an altar most holy. So his instructions here, he says, look, now we understand because we studied this altar. We understand this altar is a place of sacrifice, okay? It's a place of sacrifice. This is where the flesh comes to die. Okay? Now, in Galatians 2, verse 20 says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're to be crucified or crucify our flesh that our will and our, our oh, that we might be submitted and, and surrendered to God. This person who surrendered would stop living for their flesh and their fleshly desires and they would start living for or according to the spirit of God. 
Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says this, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. What is the thing that you would? You would walk in the Spirit. He says, look, you can't not walk in the Spirit if you are walking in your flesh. Listen to this. Then we go on to the next area, which is, which is the Word of God. Okay, we go on next, going to look at the labor. The labor is a picture of God's Word. And now understand, with the labor, we saw that as a picture of God's Word for the believer. And what we see is the fact that here's a place where our will, where our wisdom is to be washed. It's to be cleansed with truth. So we all have our own way of thinking. We have our own, what we think is right. The Bible says that men, that, uh, you know, everything is right in, in, in men's own eyes. It's, it's, everything is right to them. Everyone believes what they believe is right. But listen to this in James 3, verse 15 through 18, talking about earthly wisdom. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Boy, who can attest to that? Where envying and strife is, there is confusion. Hello, if you've ever been around a group of people for any period of time, that's bound to take place. Verse 17, but the wisdom that is, far, that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. He says, guess what? It's real. It's real. Verse 18, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace, man. As we allow God, the spirit of God to wash over us in his word, guess what he'll do? The impossible. He will cleanse things that we did not think were possibly to be cleansed. We have issues and things in our life where we go, you know what? I could never be forgiven of this. No one could ever understand. What I did was so awful. And God says, you know what? I saw it. I was there. I watched every second of it. And you know what? I forgive you. I am ready, willing, and able to forgive you right where you are. Now, as we've addressed, so, so as we've looked at these different areas, we're, remember, we're taking the tabernacle things that they're doing and we're addressing it to us, okay? We're making it to fit us. So we see here that we've addressed how the Spirit of God must be poured over our intimacy with God in the Holy of Holies, through our worship of God, how the, uh, how the Spirit of God is to be poured over our fleshly desires, over our will, and our wisdom at the labor. And now we're going to move on to our walk. To our walk. Now, and it's interesting is here, we're going to see the foot of the labor end, and we see the foot of the labor is, is referenced here, and also we're going to see mankind, both pictures of the walk. And thou shalt, verse 11, thou shalt anoint the labor and his foot and sanctify it, and thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and wash them with water. Okay? So we must be clean before we go any further. Boy, this world will dirty you up. This world will make you filthy. We can go to places, spend time around people, and you walk away and you feel like you need to take a shower. You're just like, ooh, ugh. It can dirty you up. Physically, yeah, but spiritually. Man, it can, it can wear you out. It can weigh you down. It can make you sad and broken and lonely. So as we look at this aspect of our walk, understand Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. We've got to be clean. It says this, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. And this is a wonderful lesson for all husbands, your husband in here, 
and you're going to be a husband. Husbands, love your wives. That's your responsibility. That's your duty. Love your wife, whether she deserves it or not. Irrelevant. She still gets love. Even as Christ, because remember, listen to this part, because he's going to give us an example. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, he gave sacrificial love. If you're a husband, that is your job. Whether your wife on that day deserves it or not, love her. Love her. Give her, treat her the same way that God treats us. We don't deserve his love, and yet he loves us. Then verse 24, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it, listen to this, with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself, a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. God says, look, it's to be set aside. It's to be sanctified. It's to be clean. He says, you need to be clean in your walk. You need to be clean in your heart. You need to look at those issues in your heart and life and deal with them. If we're struggling with something, we've got a sin in our life, we need to address it. Let the washing of the water of the word deal with that sin in your life and bring it out in the open. You know what? Sin hates light. Hates light. The Bible says that men love darkness because their deeds are evil. Right? Why do you think people break in your house at night? Because you can hide your actions, right? It's just a sad fact of what's happened. So this happens through his word, which is, of course, guided by his spirit. This is the thing that's amazing. God does it all. God does it all. He gives us the word, and instead of going, okay, guys, go figure it out. He goes, all right, I gave you the word, and now what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a guide too. And he's going to guide you through it, and guess what? He'll even instruct you. He's going to show you how to do this thing. He's going to teach you the word of God. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 13 through 16. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. He says, look, you're going to go into the Bible, let it define itself. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Remember, the Spirit is what shows us. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. We can understand the word of God if we'll let God guide us. Yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. If you have a Bible, you have the mind of Christ. God manifested his mind in this, on this earth in this book. You want to know what God believes about anything? Look it up. You will find it. It is all there. And the great thing is, the Spirit will guide you through it. I was telling you, man, when I was working on this message, I could feel the Lord just going, hey, go here, go here, go here. And I'm telling you, you've never experienced that, man. You need to. Let God speak to your heart. Let him use this word to change your heart. It is an awesome experience, unlike any. I mean, I had tried everything in the world prior to getting saved. And I'm telling you, nothing compares to serving God. I don't care what drug you take, what thing you drink, what something you jump off of, how many things risks you take, how fast you drive. All that stuff doesn't, it does not even compare. Not by, not even close to what God can give you in your heart and fulfill your life. And if you're young, man, and that's stuff you want to do, let it go now, man. Don't suffer the consequences and the scars in your life from making stupid choices that you've got to deal with later in life. Guys, I didn't get saved until I was 34, and I made so many stupid mistakes and hurt so many people up till then. If I could go back, boy, I would do it differently. But we can't. So we say, you know what? From here, from this day forward, I'm going to press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I'm going to do my best to honor the Lord. So once the word's done, it's miraculous work, and it's, it's cleansed us and changed our walk, the conversation of our life. Now the Spirit addresses something else in us. He's going to address our, our appearance. We get to verse 13. 
And thou shalt uh, put upon Aaron the holy garments and anoint him and sanctify him that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt bring his sons and clothe them with coats. Okay, Aaron and his sons, right? They're to be a walking, talking proclamation of holiness and godliness. That's what they're supposed to be. And we're not talking about, now understand what I said, we're talking about appearance. I'm not talking about dress codes. I'm not talking about haircuts. I'm not talking about ladies wearing pants. I'm not talking about any of that ridiculous stuff. Because understand, those things, there are churches that have gotten so far off track, focusing on rules and regulations, trying to conform people to an image, right? When the Bible talks about the image of God, it's talking about the heart of a man. It's not talking about the outside. It's not talking about all these exterior things. If we're focused on the outside, what we do is we create hypocrites. Hypocrites, because what happens is if we're so concerned about the outside and they conform to the outside, then guess what? The heart goes untouched. The heart goes the same. If they learn to play the game, guess what? They'll just go, you know what? They'll pretend and they'll live a lie. Having been one that lived that life. Right? And what's so cool about this is Jesus teaches us about this very subject. He tells us exactly how to do it. He says, no, this is not about making rules and regulations. This is about dealing with the heart. Listen to this, Matthew 23. Verses 25 through 28, Jesus is approaching. He's talking to the Pharisees, right? He's addressing them. And I'm telling you what, you want to read something where there's some wabam, wabam. I mean, if, if, if this was WWE, man, he would be coming off the ropes. Cacacow. I mean, I'm talking pile driver. He's lambing them, man. This is, he's ripping into them the whole time. Listen to this, Matthew 23 to 25. Uh, it says this, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Notice this, he says, hypocrites, with an exclamation point. He's yelling it, hypocrites. For ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Already, this, this analogy he's giving of cups, it's not a very good analogy in the fact that he's going, look, you know what? He's not talking about food on the inside. He's saying, look, I'm revealing this that I'm talking about you guys because it's full of extortion and excess. I don't know if keeps your cups full of extortion and excess. But the point is this. He's saying, look, you're dealing with the outside. Listen to the next part. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which, was, that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside, that, 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 that of the outside, that, that may, may be clean also, okay? He says, look, if you want to address the way someone looks on the outside, don't address the outside. Address the inside. Because if you address the inside and you address the heart, guess what will happen? The outside will just get clean. It just happens that way. He says, you're so concerned with the exterior You've lost sight of what's important. And the problem is the Pharisees, because they had so many rules and regulations, they were so focused on that, they lost sight of who God was supposed to be in their life. Listen to this in verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchers. These, are, these were caves where they put bodies, and they, put them, and they used to whitewash them and paint them white with all this, to make them look pretty and put flowers around them, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Then he strips away all the veil and he tells them right up. He, now he confronts them directly. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. He says, you guys looked apart. You got your gowns on, you got your outfits on, you got your phylacteries, your tassels, you got your fringe, you got all this stuff. You looked apart, guys, but you're far from me. Your heart is not for God. It's for flesh. You've lost sight. And it can happen to us. I'm telling you, as a Christian, you can lose sight of what's important. You can start judging people by the way they look, and that's not our place. I'm not to judge any man. Can I judge right or wrong? Absolutely. But their life, who they are, their value, that's not my place to judge. I don't care what they do or who they are, where they come from. There's no sin above any other. God says, look, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Don't think you're above anybody else. 
He says, look, everybody has the same issue. And we see this Christian life is not about appearing godly. It's about being godly. And that's the trick. So many focused upon what they're trying to do is they're trying to appear as something that they're not. God says, you know what? I'd rather you be filthy and sinful and just be real. Because he said, I rather, he said, because you know what? I'd rather you be hot or be cold. Cold meaning, you know what? You're so far out in the world, nobody can tell the difference. You are filthy with sin. If that's what you're going to choose, because look, if you're going to play the part and you're going to profess yourself to be a Christian, but that's your heart, just give up and go do that. I don't want you to waste time because you know what you do? You're going to hurt real people, real Christians. Stand for the truth. Romans 7, 18. And understand this. God's not concerned with what we can do with our flesh. Right? It's not about what we can do with it. 7, 18. Romans 7, 18 says this. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. He says, look, I can't do it in my strength, Paul says. Your flesh is not the issue, or your flesh is the issue, but what you can do with it is irrelevant. It's what God can do. See, God's concerned with what he can do with our flesh. And the way God works in humanity is by way of his spirit, the anointing of the spirit of God. As he anoints souls, as he comforts hearts, as he convicts behavior, as he reveals truth, as he cleanses us, through the word and then lastly God addresses our service our service verse 15 and thou shalt anoint them as thou didst anoint their father and they may that they may minister unto me in the priest's office for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations not only was this anointing to set them apart but as we stated before it is to separate them apart and set them for God's or for the purpose of God's service these priests are being accepted into a priesthood that is eternal. This is an everlasting priesthood to all, it says, throughout their generations. And just like these priests, guess what? We've been accepted as priests that we could serve God in an eternal service to him. First Peter 2, 9 says this, but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, speaking to the church and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So as children of God, man, we have been given the spirit of God. It's contained within us. And like Moses, right? Remember Moses sitting looking at these big vats of all the stuff in front of him? Man, Moses has got this incredible supply of ointment, of this incredible oil, this holy anointing oil. He's got it right there. And you and I, had this massive supply of the Spirit of God within us. And Moses has got to make a choice. Will he follow God's instructions? And will he anoint the tabernacle? And see, we know what he did. We know what he did. The question is, we have, are we going to anoint our tabernacle? Will we allow the Holy Spirit of God to anoint, to anoint our intimacy with God? Our worship with God, right? Our, our fleshly desires, will you allow the Holy Spirit to deal with those? Our will and our wisdom, will you allow God to wash over those things? Our walk, right? Our walk, our appearance, which is our testimony. The way we appear to this world, does my light so shine before men that they may see my good works and glorify my Father which is in heaven? Is that what it does? And then lastly, our service. Do we allow the Spirit of God to work in our tabernacle 
to anoint all these parts of who we are. Moses did. Verse 16 said this, Thus did Moses according to all that the Lord commanded him, so did he. Okay? So here's our physical, practical example of what's supposed to happen inside of us. We saw that Moses followed through. Here's where it comes hard. How about us? How about us? Will we allow the Spirit of God to do that? Will we do it God's way? Or will we do it our way and experience the results of following our flesh and have all the regrets? Or, man, will we, we allow God through his Spirit to pour out of us onto every part of who we are? And in doing so, experience the joy of being anointed unto God. We've been given an incredible gift. If you're a child of God today, you have the spirit within you. All you need, like Moses, you've got more than enough. But will you use it for God's glory? Or will you grieve the spirit? We get to choose. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today. <laughs> for our message, God. And I know that uh, you have spoken to my heart. And Lord, I thank you so much for the receptive uh, attitude of this room and Lord the way that you've been speaking to us and Lord I do pray God that you would help us help us Lord help us to deal with the issues of our hearts of our lives of our surrender help us Lord to see what it is that we need to cleanse what we need to surrender to your will and your ways God that you might use these lives and Lord that this tabernacle might be holy thank you for giving us this word and Lord I pray that if there's any in this room that today would say, you know what, Pastor, I'm not, I'm not holy. I'm not sanctified. I know I'm far from God. I may be a child of God right now. I need to make some changes. If that's you, praise the Lord, because he's here with us and he's ready to forgive you as we speak. Just submit. But if you're here and you say, you know, Pastor, I, I don't even know God. 19 years ago, I'd never been in church my entire life. I had never heard the gospel before. I'd never opened a Bible in my entire life. And someone cared enough about me to share the truth of who Jesus was and who I was as a lost man. The Bible says, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God, all of us. And with the realization of the fact that that sin was gonna take me to hell because there was a penalty that had to be paid and the fact that God loved me and because he loved me, he saw that penalty that was placed upon my shoulders and he said, you know what I'll do? I'll take that penalty. I will pay the fine that you owe for the sins of your life. And he did that on the cross of Calvary. And it was love that put him on the cross. And it was love that kept him on the cross, not the nails. And it was love that caused him to take his final breath and say, it is finished. Those are strange things to say at the end of your life. What he was saying is what he came to do was done. And you and I have a chance to receive that gift. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, a gift, a gift costs the giver. And this gift, boy, it costs dearly. But to the receiver, it costs nothing. 